This morning is first Sunday, so we're going to be observing the Lord's table in a little bit, and um, but and our and our kids are with us, and um, I would encourage you as we as we go through the adjustment of our schedules um, on Sundays, and I know there's a lot um, that's going on uh, between Sundays and the family Bible studies, and and guys, thank you so much for all of you that have signed up. I mean, there there is a in fact we're we're getting people going. I don't think my living room is big enough. Um, so, so we're excited about being able to engage in the family Bible studies, and this this Wednesday is um, the South Bible study, uh, which is meeting at Jay and Jan Bell's house. Um, and so, if you need if you need directions to their house, um, see Jay or Jan. All right, and they're right over there. And then uh, on Thursday is the um, is the North group, and they are meeting at Greg and Lori. Jones's house, and so if you need directions there, ask Jordan. Um, yeah, so <laughs> oh, so Greg and Lori are are there, and we're. I want to encourage you to connect to this and commit to be connect, commit to connect to it, not just one week, but try try to give it some time because we're building relationships, a different kind of uh, approach to things. The first one's going to be a little awkward. It's going to be like a junior high dance. Um, as everybody tries to figure out what's your place and how do we do this thing, but as we sort it out, I think it'll be a real encouragement to you, and they do move around. Um, Every week they're at a different location um, so that one host family is not bearing the brunt of having everybody um, every single week. Um, We have the September schedule in your bulletin and the October schedule uh, will be out in the next couple weeks, and um, so we're we're glad for those that that are hosting that. Um, and you can, you may notice, and uh, I'll, I'll pass this. I want to pass a, a, a praise and a prayer request along to you that you may or may not have seen. Um, if you get our emails, if you don't get our emails and you want to get them, um, please see me after the service. And we can make sure we get you added on there. Um, but uh, this uh, this week, uh, Renee Beretta, who was um, a member of our church a few years ago, emailed me to let me know that after living in the United States for almost 20 years, um, Renee, Brandon, and Lisa, their daughter, were granted their green cards, um, which is a which is a huge praise for them because they can finally. Brandon was able to travel outside of the country, but Renee and Lisa and and uh, uh, Ryan were not able to. So. Um, and so they were able to get their green cards. Their son Ryan doesn't have his yet because he's in college and there's things going on with that. But, um, but so that means that for the first time in over a decade, um, uh, Renee is going to be able to travel home uh, to South Africa. So that's a big deal for them. So we're, we're excited um, that God has finally worked that out. Um, in terms of prayer requests, you may notice my wife is not here. Uh, she threw her back out again. And so she's been at home. Uh, we bought a we bought a new car for her last Saturday. She's driven it for a grand total of seven miles, um, whereas I have driven it 260, driving her back and forth to the chiropractor and massage therapist and all kinds of stuff. So just be in prayer for her that she'll mend. We're supposed to be on vacation the next two weeks, um, but we're not going anywhere. We're going to stay home, and um, we're still going to be here on Sunday. So don't bail, okay? All right, um, but uh, just pray for my wife. Pray for Ariel. has been doing a great job taking care of her and jumping in and doing all kinds of stuff. And pray for our dog because she is just overwrought that Nicole is not taking her for walks. And uh, now she's happy that she gets to take naps 23 out of 24 hours a day. Um, but uh, the dog does not know what to do. So you can just pray for us. Um, this is a perennial issue with Nicole and we're trying to address it so it doesn't, doesn't come back again. Um, but anyway... 
With all that said, would you join me in the book of 1 Peter, chapter 3, um, as we continue to look at Peter looking at Christ and looking at the church and making reflections. And Peter is an old fisherman, and so he is a, but he is an old fisherman with an incredible mind. Um, and he has a mind for he has a mind for practical knowledge. I think that's one of the most extraordinary things about Peter. As I continue to to read him and and explore who he is through what he's written um, and looking at the Gospels, Peter has an extraordinary mind. Peter also uh, this is this is something that that I just noticed this week, but it's worth noting so that you're aware of it. Um, the Gospel of Mark is is Peter's Gospel. We know this from a very very early record. Um, uh, that um, a guy named Papias, uh, who was who had worked with uh, the Apostle John, he records that Peter that the Gospel of Mark is Peter's Gospel. This is the way Peter tells the story. And there's something extraordinary about the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark shows Peter doing things wrong more than any other Gospel. Um, and so Peter reflects on him himself in that gospel and his desire to honor the Lord in what he does. And so it's extraordinary to look at that. But we're going to be in the book of First Peter. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's a Bible in the rack in front of you. Page number is in the bulletin. And if you'd like to take it home because you don't have a Bible for yourself, please feel free to take it home. We want somebody to have, we want you to have a copy of the Bible. Um, but First Peter chapter 3, the Apostle Peter has been dealing with the matter of authority with God's ordained order for life. And he has dealt with those who rule over us. Um, he has dealt with husbands and wives. And then he has made some pretty uh, straightforward statements about everybody. And we read this passage last week, but we're going to look at it again. Uh, chapter 3 and verse 8, the Apostle Peter says, finally, he says, all right, at the end of all of this discussion, all of you, have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Um, and this is this extraordinary Hebrew poetic device that he uses to point out um, there, there's corollaries to the first one, unity of mind, um, and then sympathy, which is a, a joining of the passions, and then brotherly love, um, the love of the brothers, and then comes back to tender heart and a humble mind, and his focus is the love of the brotherhood. And then in verse 9, he says this, Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. Four, and he quotes Psalm 34, the psalm that we read together at the beginning of the service. Whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lip from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil." 
Join me in a word of prayer. Father God, once again, we look to these words and we ask that we would see in these words, these words on a page, the living work of Jesus in the life of this man, Peter, and in our own lives. We ask that we would know in in practical, real terms how we might follow Christ more effectively um, in a world with multiple agendas, in a world with competing and, and, and uh, rivaling forces at work, pulling in every direction. May you be honored in our lives and may this time together in your word, may we, we open our hearts and our eyes, our hands, our mouths, that we might learn to be more like Christ. We ask this in, in his name, in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior, who died and was raised again, that we might walk in newness of life. We ask in his name. Amen. So Peter begins to talk about our conduct. And he's been talking about relationships, and now he's going to talk about our conduct. And his observations that he makes um, show us his perspective on an error that we often make. And the error that is often made Um, in our culture, is that we define our morality and conduct by the perceptions of those around us. We define, we often define our morality and our conduct by the perception of those around us. If we are around a bunch of good people, we tend to define ourselves by those good people. Now, we may define ourselves as rebelling against those good people, Um, you know, that's teenage rebellion. Why are you doing that? You know, if if you really ask a teenager, why are you doing this thing that I don't want you to do? It's because you told me to do it. And I just, I don't know. There's something I have to do that. Um, you know, and, and that's not just teenagers. It's, you know, it's lots of us. Um, so, so often we define our conduct by those around us. So, so maybe we're around a bunch of people, we want them to like us, and so we redefine our conduct according to them. Or we are around a bunch of people, we want them to hate us, and so we, we define our conduct around them. Or we get people, we want to irritate people so that they demonstrate that they are irritating. Right? So we, we do things that annoy them intentionally to get them all flustered. I know that no one would ever, ever, ever do that. Um, but, uh, you know, there, there are, you know, there are certain ways that we can, we can kind of stick it to people, right? And get them to, get them to respond so we can say, ha ha, I knew that you would respond that way when I did that thing that I knew you would respond to. Um, so we often define our conduct by those around us. Now, the vast majority of the way that people think is we get around a group of people that we like and we want those people to like us, and so we define our conduct by their conduct. This happens in the church all the time. Um, that you, you get into church and you find a bunch of great people that you really like, and so you say, okay, um, I'm going to do this this way because everybody in church does it that way. Um, and so, so that's uh, that's what I'm going to do. I'm gonna I'm gonna do this thing. Or we get in with a bunch of coworkers that seem to be really doing great things. And we say we want to do that. Or we find somebody who's making money. 
And who doesn't want to make money? I mean, like earn it, not actually make it, you know, print it on your computer at home. And, I mean, don't you wish you could do that? Oh, I need a 150 bucks. Give me that inkjet printer. Oh, there it is. Um, you know, but we look at people making money. We go, oh, I want to do that because they're making money and I want to make money. And so I'm going to do things the way that they want to do. They're successful. And so I want to be successful. And so I'm going to be like them. You know, and, and this, this happens an awful lot in our culture. Um, and to a certain extent, if it's not doing, harming somebody, hey, you know, go, go for it. I mean, if, if everybody you know listens to a certain kind of music and you want to be cool like them, and so you listen to that certain kind of music and you acquire a taste for that, that that's not a big deal. The issue is when our morality is determined by the group of people that we're with. When our code of conduct, our code of ethics, is defined by the people that we're with. Um, uh, Bill Shatner, who, who makes me laugh, if you, William Shatner is just a big, giant goof, all right? And, and he his, the only thing bigger than Bill Shatner's uh, head is Bill Shatner's head. All right, um, you know, and he, and so in the show Third Rock from the Sun, the fact that they called him, his name in the show was The Big Head. That, that just, it's fantastic. But anyway, Bill Shatner directed one of the Star Trek movies. And so if you've ever watched the Star Trek movies, if you're a Trekkie, um, then you know that, that the, the even-numbered Star Trek movies are not very good, and the odd-numbered Star Trek movies are always fantastic. We don't know why it happens. It's a law of nature. It's proven. It's just the way it goes. So, um, so Star Trek three and four were directed by Leonard Nimoy, and Nimoy and Shatner had a what's called a favored nations clause um, in their contracts. What that means is neither of them was allowed to do anything unless the other one could also do it. So, Sh- so Nimoy, who was a, a gifted director, he made made some fantastic movies. He directed three and four, and so guess who wants to direct a Star Trek movie? So Bill Shatner wants to direct a Star Trek movie, and he directed Star Trek V. Have any of you ever seen Star Trek V? All right, if you haven't seen it, don't worry about it. All right, Star Trek V is awful. Um, but what happened was Bill Shatner had this idea for what the movie was going to be, and then all of the insiders started to tell him, well, this movie, you know, in order to have this movie really be successful, this movie has to have this. And Bill went, oh, okay, yeah, we need to do that. And they said, oh, and, and it also needs to have this, and it also needs to have this, to the point that uh, Bill Shatner, in his autobiography, tells you that, that Star Trek V is his least favorite Star Trek movie. All right? And it's the one that he directed. Because it became, he, he realized that over time, this group of people he was trying to please, they ate away at what he was trying to do until the final product was completely unrelated with what he started out to do. Can you identify with that? The people, that, that happens? Even well-intentioned people, they just chip away and chip away and chip away. You know what a camel is, right? A camel is a horse built by a committee. Um... You can only have so many voices involved in in finding something. And Peter talks about our conduct, our life, our morality, our our, our conduct as believers, and he says, he as he as he depicts it to us, he says to it, he says basically, he says, um, and I, I wanna I wanna get into it. He says, Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? This is verse 13. But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. See, 
he, he looks at everything around you and he says, look, he says, you can't be afraid. You can't be troubled by everything that's around you. You cannot allow that to determine who you are in Christ. Uh, the Christian life does not work from the outside in. It works from the inside out. And he says to them, he says, rather than be afraid, being afraid, all right, and, and all of us at one point or another define our lives by what we're afraid of. Oh, I'm afraid they won't like me. This is the number one thing that defines human conduct is I'm afraid those people that I really like won't like me. Um, and, so, uh, and so I'm afraid of that and so I'm going to do whatever it takes for, in order for them to be, ha- to be happy with who I am so that I, I will please them. All right? I don't want to be nonconformist. And he says, and do not be troubled. And how much of our lives is, is, is sometimes our conduct is dictated by the troubling of our hearts and our spirits. We just look at something and we go, oh, oh, I don't know. And by, by trouble, I don't mean fear. I'm not talking about, I'm talking about a, a, um, an, an inability to, to see, understand, or act. A confusion. Um, being troubled is not about being afraid. Being troubled is about not being able to stand on something. Um, you ever watch like a movie and there's two guys arguing and there's somebody in between and they go, oh, he has a good, oh, and he has a good point and he has a good point and he has a good point and I don't know, I can't make up my mind which side I'm going to be on. All right, people, that can often determine how you you live your life. You don't know whether you really believe this or don't believe this, and how how is this going to work, and whether it, I don't know. So there's fear and there's troubling, and he says instead, and he gets to the core of how a Christian decides what is moral, what is good, what is the way that we must live our lives. He says, um, in your hearts. This is verse 15. Honor Christ the Lord as holy. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. See, it's very easy to honor Christ with our mouth because all we have to do is sing whatever everybody else is singing. Memorize whatever everybody else is memorizing. Go wherever anybody else is going. And we say, oh, that's honoring Christ. I mean, this is worship. This is good. But when it is a heart condition, when at the very core of who I am, I seek to honor the Christ, honor Christ the Lord as holy, um, that transforms who I am. Now, I need you to understand what Peter means when he says, honor Christ the Lord as holy. This is an important formula that gets lost when we read it because we don't necessarily think about it. But think about what he says. He doesn't say honor Jesus Christ or, or honor the Lord Jesus Christ. He says honor Christ the Lord. Well, what is he saying? In fact, he's saying Christ the Lord as holy. Very interesting formulation, and it's a very Jewish way of saying that Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, 
is the Lord who is holy. Well, guess who the Lord who is holy is? That's the creator God of Genesis. It's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's the God of Moses. And so what he is saying is we must honor Christ as God. For he alone is holy. Now, this is an extraordinary statement that Peter is making because remember that Peter is a Jew. He, he, he grew up as a Jew. He grew up studying, studying and observing the law, believing the Shema. Hero Israel, the Lord your God is one God. So he is identifying Christ, who was one of his closest friends on earth. He is identifying Jesus as the God of the Old Testament. I say this all the time. But I, it, need, it bears repeating, when people say that early Christians did not believe that Jesus was God, they're not reading the New Testament. They absolutely did believe that Jesus was God. And here is Peter saying this. He's saying, honor Christ the Lord as holy in your heart. He says there, there is a heart condition that is required for true Christian conduct. And that heart condition has to be the core of my being submitted and honoring Christ the Lord as holy. There are plenty of people who want to honor Christ as a good teacher. There are plenty of people who want to honor Christ as, as um, oh, wasn't he a wonderful person? But that's not what Peter calls us to do. He calls us to honor Christ the Lord as holy. That goes beyond saying, oh, Jesus had a lot of good things to say. It goes beyond saying, I'm a Christian, but I don't accept the Bible as the word of God. It goes beyond saying, well, you know, I'm a Christian, but I think that Christianity is outdated and we need to kind of update our thing. And if you, have, if you haven't noticed, this is what's going on in our American culture. In the, 1900, the 1800s and the early 1900s, scholars and academics tried to deteriorate the foundation of Christianity by saying that the Bible wasn't really the Bible and, and there, you know, all, all the stuff they did, the Bible didn't understand science and, and it's a reflection of this and they tried to deteriorate the foundation. Our problem today is not people tearing out at the historical foundation of the scripture. Mo, even most atheists would say, most agnostics would say, yeah, Jesus was a real person, you know, everything that happened in the Bible is relatively accurate, you know, they, they nuance it, but they, they say, okay, you know, this is... Now the argument is, well, you can be a Christian because Christian is just something that you want to be, but you don't have to really believe all that outdated nonsense. And I'm going to tell you right now, in order to be a Christian, you have to believe all that outdated nonsense. I'm just going to be honest. I, in order to be a Christian, I have to believe that Jesus is God. I, I, I'm sorry, there's no escaping that. I have to believe that he's the savior of the world. I have to believe that he lived died, was raised again, and ascended and is seated on the right hand of the Father. There, there is no way to escape that. In order to be a Christian, I have to believe there is no name given on, uh, on in he- uh, given, uh, I'm going to mess it up. Jesus is the way, the only way, that's the way it goes. All right? That's the DeVitro paraphrase. All right? But this is what the Bible says. This is what it means to be a Christian. And it has to exist at the core of my being. Because when I'm confronted with something that I'm uncomfortable with, I have to be willing to sit there and say, why am I uncomfortable with this? Is it because I don't like it? Or is it because there's something about that thing 
that is in conflict with the one I am honoring as God in my heart. There are plenty of things I'm uncomfortable with. All right? uh, there are lots of things I don't like. Um, I, I don't like Kia Souls. I think they're ugly. All right, I, 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 uh, I, I, generally speaking, all right, generally speaking, I don't like Massachusetts drivers. Um, I don't like humidity. All right, I, I, I don't like country music. All right, I don't like baseball. It's boring. The games are like six hours long. But let me tell you something. They feel like, you know, let me put it this way. I went to a baseball game. I've gone to two baseball games in my entire life. One of them was the Montreal Expos against the Florida Marlins the year the Marlins entered the league. That game went 15 innings and lasted like, I don't know, I didn't have to shave when I, when I went in. When I came out, and I was in Montreal, by the way, all right? So it wasn't like I could escape. I was with a bunch of French-speaking people, and I didn't speak French, so I was stuck, all right? Um... I went to that game, so then I thought, I'll try it again. I went to Fenway, and the, the Red Sox were playing, I don't remember who it was. Um, Manny Ramirez was on the Red Sox team, so that tells you how long ago it was. And I kid you not, it went 15 innings and lasted till like 1 o'clock in the morning. It wasn't really 1 o'clock, but it felt like 1 o'clock. I said, I'm never going to another baseball game ever. Uh, for one thing, there's no full contact in baseball. I think it, nothing wouldn't, would help baseball more than wearing pads and hitting each other. I, I think that would really... But I just don't like it. But there's nothing unbiblical about baseball. There's no, even nothing unbiblical about being a Yankees fan. You, you can be a faithful Christian and you can root for the New York Giants or the New York Yankees or the Baltimore Ravens, cheaters. Um, or you can, you can root for whoever you want. It, that's not a Bible thing. That's just something I'm uncomfortable with because of who I am. But when my heart is given to honor Christ, there are some things I'm uncomfortable with because they're wrong. They're wrong. And no amount of political pressure, no amount of popular representation of how right that thing is should change my heart condition that Jesus said it's wrong, so it's wrong. The best thing Christians can ever do in this world is stand for what they believe instead of letting the culture determine how they interpret what they believe. Well, let's find a way to be less offensive about that. I got news for you. No matter how hard you try, the fact that your religion is founded by a Jewish guy who lived in the Middle, Age, in the Middle East who was crucified by a run to Romans and his followers says that he was raised from the dead and is God, that is offensive to people. So trying to be less offensive with the rest of your faith is not going to work. Well, we know the foundation of it is, not, is pretty offensive, but let us tell you all the other better things about it. Now, I'm not saying go out of your way. You know, I'm not saying that you should be uh, spitting in people's face, yelling, screaming, fanatic. You don't have to be like that. In the South, kind of, but uh, not, no. Um, but the, I'm going to get in trouble for that one. But the, uh, why not? I've already offended everybody else. Um, 
But the reality is, uh, to be a Christian, I have to act because of my heart. Now let me tell you, and the Apostle, Paul, or the Apostle Peter deals with the difference between somebody who is acting or speaking about a controversial cultural thing, defining their conduct, defining their behavior. He, he shows us the difference between somebody who is doing that because, because they're doing it because everybody said that they should do it, and they're doing it because there is something supernatural that has happened in their heart because they're honoring Christ as the Lord. And he says this in verse 15, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Remember, this is talking about conduct. This is not talking about my beliefs, but rather that as I'm conducting myself in the lives of other people and I'm not being defined by fear or being troubled, but being defined by Christ at work in my heart, he says you should be able to defend the hope that is in you and do it, uh, we get yet in English, but same conjugate, uh, conjunction, and do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience. Now I grew up, and you guys all know the story, I grew up in fiercely fundamentalist territory. And I remember one day being a kid um, and going to a tent meeting. Now if you've never gone to a tent meeting, all right, tent meeting basically means you get a loud, obnoxious preacher you set a tent up in the middle of the last town that will allow you to do it, and you let them scream at people for weeks. All right, that's what a tent meeting is. Um, I remember all kinds of crazy stuff. I could tell you more bizarre stories about tent meetings, people throwing handkerchiefs in the air, old women running laps and playing on the piano, I, all, all kinds of strange things that were going on. But I remember a preacher... Um, preaching, and, and this stuff has come out on the internet now, but this is firsthand. I heard a preacher do this. I can tell you his name. Who said that any, and he used a, a very derogatory term, all right, but any homosexuals come up into my face, I'm going to beat them over the head with a baseball bat, turn them around, kick them with my cowboy boot. And he got vulgar and disgusting every possible way you could think of how offensive he was. Now, let me be perfectly honest. All right? I, I, I don't believe homosexuality honors God. Right? I don't. God, God created male and female. He created them. There's, there's a unity in the scriptures. And, and I don't mean to offend anyone. I, now, I do believe and I'm going to run off a rail here, but I do believe homosexual couples have a right to be as miserable in their marriages as anyone else. <laughs> I believe that. They want to deal with the legal system and all that stuff, let them. The legal system is not the word of God. All right? I don't care what the government does all right, on that particular matter. I'm, I'm, I'm okay with the government doing it. It's not like they're going to do any worse on that than anything else they've done. All right? But... I remember sitting there and being about 13 or 14, and I already had a gay friend at this point. And I remember sitting there going, and, and I kid you not, this is the thought that popped in my mind, how do you know you're not gay? This guy screaming and yelling about how, because you know what? I don't need to threaten to beat people over baseball bat if I simply believe something in my heart. You believe something different than I do? That's okay. 
I'm able to simply say, here's the reasons I believe this. Can you present me with the reasons that you believe it? Okay, we're at an impasse. Here is where the schisma of Genesis is going on, which is a big word for saying disagreement. And, um, and that's okay. We can agree to disagree. My value system moves me one way. Your value system moves you another way. I'm okay with that. You have the freedom to believe that, and I have the freedom to believe this. And, and let's just continue in our relationship. I have no problem with that. But when somebody starts screaming and yelling about how everybody needs to conform to their way of doing things, don't you ever sit back and go, do you really believe that? Or are you trying to force people to accept that you believe something that maybe down deep in your heart doesn't exist, isn't real, isn't true? I get concerned about people who feel they have to convert every single person they encounter to Christianity. I, I have fellow pastors tell me, we had 376 people come to the Lord this year. I use a southern accent only because they do. And I look at them and go, so how big is your church? How many of those are following Christ? Well, we baptized one. Whoa, 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 wait a second. What are you doing? How are you, I mean, you can go on my Facebook page. I have a manual, by the way, for soul winning. This method of grabbing somebody and pointing in their face and making them pray a prayer. All kinds of craziness. I got to tell you something. I believe in my heart that Jesus Christ is the hope of all the world. I believe he is the only way to know God. And I believe it so strongly that I don't need to shove it down people's throats. I am absolutely 100% confident that I am a sinner, condemned to hell if it were not for Christ. But he has saved me and redeemed me and transformed me that I might love him and love others and have a relationship with the creator God. And I want other people to have that, but I don't need to jam it down their throats because I believe it so strongly. But when we confess to believe something and we feel the necessity to shove that thing down people's throats, you have to wonder whether that's really a heart knowledge of that matter. Or whether that's me justifying what I've been told to believe by the group of people that I want to have like me. We used to joke around when I was a young preacher. I had, I had this way of preaching on Sunday night. I had three or four specific things I would say because I knew it would get amens from people. And you know me, my brain is always moving and always active and, and I was young and immature and so I used to mess with people and insert these particular sayings in sermons that had nothing to do with what I was saying. I would just find a way, you guys know I'm pretty good at talking and I could just talk my way into anything and I'm talking and talking and I would throw this thing in and, and people asleep on the back row would go, Amen! And I said to my wife, this is so frustrating. They don't amen anything that I say that has substance. They only amen the stupid catchphrases. Our faith needs to be heart condition. Our faith needs to be heart condition. And our conduct, if you can't give a, a good reason for the why, way you do something, good or evil, if it doesn't flow out of the heart... And is it real? Is it real? He says, for it is better to suffer for doing good, verse 17, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. He says, look, 
I'm going to do what I believe God has called me to do no matter what the circumstances around me. Because Christ in me, the hope of glory, the Apostle Paul uses that phrase, is working out through me his gospel. And his gospel is brotherly love. His gospel is a humble mind. His gospel is sympathy. His his gospel is all those things that are back on verse 8. They manifest in me as he works on me. And, And hopefully it transforms others. Is is the gospel of Jesus Christ confrontational? Absolutely. There comes a point whenever you are describing your faith to someone who is not a person of faith, there comes a point where they say, that's absurd. Now, if you really believe what you believe, you will probably do what I do, which is often to say, yep. I have people tell me all the time, I don't believe in God. I tell them, tell me about the God you don't believe in because I don't probably don't believe in him either because their false perception of who you are as a christian has been tainted by all these people screaming and yelling and threatening to people hit people with baseball bats and manipulating people and creating moralistic codes and 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 running for government office when they don't belong there did i i didn't say that um you know all of these things that 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 they, they have this false perception and the only thing that you can do to combat those false perceptions is to have Christ at work in your heart, the Lord as holy, manifesting himself through you. Then you can do good. And if you suffer for doing good, so be it. But if you suffer for doing evil, shame on you. As a Christian, our reputation should be founded upon the good we do because of the Christ who dwells in us, because of the Spirit of God. But all too often, Christianity has been known instead for the evil we have done. Here is a core test of whether your beliefs stem from Christ as honored as holy in your heart or not. Can you give a gentle answer? Can you give, right, as he says, an answer with a good conscience? Can you give it with respect? Now, let me be honest. I struggle with this. I get really, really irritated with ignorant religious people. I'm not talking about our church. I'm talking about in general. You guys, you guys are pretty on the ball. But people who just believe something with absolutely no foundation and their answer to it is to scream and yell... Uh, For some reason, I irritate those people. I don't do it on purpose. It may have to do with my constant shrugging. Because somebody says, how can you claim to be a preacher and not do this and not do that and not do that and you should be on the screen for the kitchen for the murder. They speak in tongues. And I just go, eh. Because I, I believe that Christ in me. And this is what moves me to this. And, and I act. Am I perfect? No, absolutely not. This is what I desire to be. I desire that, that I believe in my heart that Christ is at work and I, I want to let that happen. And you find yourself in uncomfortable situations. And you try to justify that you don't belong there. And the Apostle Peter got that test in the book of Acts. 
Christ appears to him in a vision and says, I'm going to send you a Gentile and I want you to go to his house. Gentile, a guy named Cornelius. And uh, shows him this vision and Peter receives a vision and he wakes up. He's sleeping on the roof of a tanner shop that must have smelled terrible I don't know if you've ever smelled tanning leather but it is not a good smell um, and he's he's uh, he's sleeping he wakes up from this vision and messengers from this guy named Cornelius they come to his come to the door and he says hey take me where you need me to take me he gets to Cornelius's house he walks through the door and the very first thing that Peter says is I'm not supposed to be here so tell me why God brought me here what he says He says, I am so incredibly uncomfortable with this situation. But God has brought me here. So tell me what to do. And it turns out that God has spoken to them and they're ready to hear about Christ and they're transformed. And Peter becomes a moving force for welcoming the Gentiles into the church. He struggles with it, but he becomes one of the driving forces behind that. Why? Because if this is what Christ wants, I'm going to do it. I have, here's my reason, here's my logic. Here's my process. This is my thing. In fact, if you read the Gospel of Mark, read the Gospel of Mark, which is Peter's Gospel, you will find unbelievable moments when Jesus reaches out to the Gentiles. And for Peter, they just sit in his mind. Demoniacs and Greeks and Phoenicians and all these people, they just sit, he says, that's what Christ called me to do, and so I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. I invite you into a, um, a time of prayer this morning. Would you join me in this prayer? Just, just quietly in your seats. If you're a Christian this morning, would you join me in this prayer? Lord, open my heart to the faith I profess, to transform the faith I live. Form me to the image of Christ, that I might be His hands and feet, and that I might give an answer to the hope that is in me. Maybe you're not a follower of Christ this morning. Still, pray with me. Help help me see this hope, this Christ, this faith. Regardless where we are, on the faith spectrum. Whatever we believe, may it, can, may it cause us to be the living manifestation of those beliefs. God, may you be glorified in your church. Pray this in Jesus' name.